There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning, the 13th of September. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. With less than a month before the budget, demand for investment intensifies from every sector. Education is no different and with an estimated budget surplus of a whopping 65 billion euro expected over the next three years, the ASTI says it is shameful that Ireland is in last place when it comes to investing in young people. The Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland is calling for a significant investment in schools. Their call comes on foot of an OECD report which was published yesterday. It's called Education at a Glance. It's an annual report and it shows that investment in secondary schools in this country is is bottom of the list at 1% of GDP compared to an average of 2% across uh, the 38 countries that are involved. Let's speak to the President of ASTI, Geraldine O'Brien, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, there's a number of ways of looking at this report, but you're looking at it in one way very clearly and that there has been years of underinvestment in education and that now is the opportunity to rectify that, I take it. Um, that's exactly it, Michael. The uh, underinvestment for years is now paying the dividends of we being bottom of the league once again. If this were a once-off, but it's a recurrence, bottom of the class every time, how poor is that for a country that's considered a first world country in the 21st century? And we uh, pride ourselves on education, education attainment, um, the knowledge economy, the skills economy. And yet, this is all done on a shoestring budget. The government needs to invest and invest seriously in Ireland's education, and in particular in second level education, and indeed in, in primary level as well. 
And that would undoubtedly be true if we were comparing like with like or measuring how we spend money on education as a percentage of GDP. Uh, But when it comes to overall spending, the outcome is very different. In this country, we've uh, massive uh, uh, revenue from multinational corporations uh, which increase GDP. It's often called leprechaun economics. uh, And perhaps that's distorting the reality of uh, the situation. Uh, That's it, Michael. Because we have so many tech companies located here in Ireland, it is distorting um, the, the image, <laughs> as you say. But it's not a good overall indicator. Like, when you're bottom of the league, you're bottom of the league. And when you compare um, total expenditure in uh, second level, it's only, in Ireland, it's only 1% compared to the um, EU average of 1.9 and the OECD average of 2. Mm. Then, when you look at that, in relation to total expenditure, right, in it, from primary to tertiary, we are only 3.2, and the OCD average, OECD average is 5.1, and mm. the EU average is 4.5. Yeah, that's as a percentage of GDP, the national yes. wealth. But yes. uh, the report also looks at how much of overall state expenditure goes into education, and there we do much better. At uh, 12% of all the money the government spends goes on education. That compares to 10% on average across the countries. That, that's, that's correct. But you must factor into that, Michael, the demographics in Irish society. We have a very young population attending primary, second level and third level education. So that distorts the figure. Our ratio, when you, when you take it as, as, a, as a ratio, our, our ratio of people from the uh, 12 to 25 age group is much higher than in the OECD. Hmm. So we have the youngest population. So as, as a pro rata investment then, it, it looks as um, if we're doing well, but we're actually not because um, it, it, when you take it on a student-for-student student basis, hmm. it's that, that figure is distorted. We, we have more children here. Uh, yes. Right. More, we, yes. Okay, right. Um, That uh, obviously uh, skews this uh, somewhat, but investment has grown. Uh, And we we acknowledge that. And investment Mm. was increased during the COVID period, but unfortunately um, it wasn't sustained. It's the investment that um, was put into uh, second-level education to keep the schools open in as far as it was practically possible at Mm. the time, uh, if that investment had to continue, um, we should and would be in a much better place. But it was a short-term measure, and unfortunately, it's not continuing. Okay, and this report looks at 2020, uh, a number of years ago, obviously, but it is obviously the latest data available to the OECD. And between 19 and 20, uh, across the OECD countries, investment in education increased by just. compared to the increase in Irish investment, which was 7%. Uh, And that, again, as a percentage of the cake, it it looks higher. But when we take it on the demographics again, it's 
um, if you average that out over our student population, it's not such a significant increase. Mm. Well, it is significant. We, we, we welcome it, but it's not enough. Mm. It's not enough. I mean, um, management at the moment are calling for higher capitation because they can't... Um, they can't keep the schools open with, with, for heating and lighting. Hmm. The utility bills. Uh, so that's, that's an issue. It certainly is a, an issue uh, because uh, the uh, upshot of that is uh, that parents end up being asked for voluntary contributions uh, that they have no option uh, in uh, deciding to contribute or, or not. Uh, it's an oblig- obligatory contribution, as it turns out. Well, if it's a voluntary contribution it's a voluntary contribution the word voluntary has a definition and it has a very distinct definition it's not a mandated it's not a compulsory deduction and in in a country where we have supposedly free second level education uh, parents should not be pressurized to uh, give so-called classified as uh, voluntary uh, but in, in, in many instances are, you know, hmm. compulsory because the students of the parents who don't um, make the contribution, those students feel it. But what, what are schools to do if they don't oblige parents to pay these contributions? Uh, should uh, they have children in classrooms, dark classrooms that are freezing cold? Well, that's... How can a student learn? How can a teacher teach? How can teaching and learning continue in the classroom if uh, you're shivering with the cold and you have to have an overcoat on to keep warm? Mm. Is that the environment we want our students to grow up in? Okay, so... Is that the school experience we wish them to have? Mm, okay, so... Uh, it, you know, it, it, if the government needs to... There, there's the other the option then, that the, the, yeah. the, the government invests more and uh, that the schools have enough from uh, the money that they receive from government to turn on the lights and the heat and that sort of thing. The capitation grants should be adequate to run the schools. Mm. Now, admittedly, schools may have a trip and they may need money for buses. That's a once-off, and it's a slightly different issue. But the day-to-day running of the schools, the heating, the lighting, the cleaning, that should all come out of the capitation budget. Okay. Were you surprised at how much teachers earn elsewhere compared to Ireland? Uh, They measure this in dollars, uh, but if you compare like with like, uh, it uh, is certainly more attractive uh, to work in a lot of other European countries. Yes, and we constantly hear the, neg- the, um, the mantra in Ireland that the teachers are, are well paid. But when you look, as you say, at the salaries in other countries, and while it's, while it's um, stated in dollars, it's very mm. easy to, trans- to translate, translate that. Mm. Um, the salaries are higher in Australia, Austria, mm. Germany, the Netherlands, Canada, and not to mention Dubai and mm. the East. Mm. And that's where the Irish graduates are um, are going to. Okay, and to make it easy for me to explain to our listeners, I'll just give some of those figures in dollars. In Ireland, the average $60,000. Australia, 63. America, 66 plus. Denmark, 74 plus. Netherlands, 79 plus. Austria, almost 80,000. And in Germany, it's over 95,000. I mean, 
of that with the uh, salary of an of an Irish teacher on uh, thirty eight thousand. Well, they, is it any wonder we have we have a, a teacher shortage? Well, they're saying on average for secondary teachers sixty thousand dollars. Well, they're 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 saying that because they're taking you as midway in the scale. Mm. But the, the scale in the Irish context is one of the longest. It's a 25-year scale. So if you take the teachers st- who are starting on their starting salary of 38000 mm. and we must also remember that the starting salary assumes, assumes incorrectly in a lot of instances that they have a full-time job. That's not the reality in the Irish education system. Mm. The reality is that very often teachers start off on a quarter salary, a half salary, three-quarter salary, and they may be on those for years before they get a full-time job. Mm. So that also needs to, uh, needs to be factored in. Okay. There's a lot of good news in this report in terms of education and how students benefit from the Irish education system. More students finish second level education in this country, it would seem, than elsewhere. The amount of people who go on to third level higher than elsewhere and end up with qualifications and so on. Are you surprised at that given the drawbacks in the report which looks at investment? Um, it just uh, indicates how how well we do with so little funding. Ireland, as you correctly said, has the highest school completion rate. And historically, there would have been a value placed on education by, by parents. That, you know, parents made huge sacrifices to have their children educated, to ensure their children completed second level and, if possible, uh, third level education. So we have the highest completion rate, right? And that's admirable. And we, we, we ought to take pride in that and give ourselves a clap on the back for it. The, um, in the, however, we have the lowest levels of 25 to 34-year-olds whose uh, higher education has a vocational orientation aspect. And currently, that is where the skills shortage is in Ireland. Now, they, they, it's explicable by the fact that we have a high rate of transfer to third level, okay, but not in the vocational sector. Not, not in, mm-hmm. in, in the vocational sector in, in, in second level. Okay, but we are doing well in terms of... Oh, we're, we're doing uh, we're, well and we're doing very, very mm-hmm. well. And but we, you know, but we is it your belief that we could do better? Well, <laughs> what, what, what was Bertie Hearn's phrase? Uh, a lot done, <laughs> more to do. Uh, more yeah. to do. <laughs> right. We could do better. I mean, if we're bottom of the class, right, if we're bottom of the class, nobody likes to be <laughs> known as the bottom of the league, the bottom of the class. If we even moved up to the middle of the class, it would, it would be a very good uh, indication of investment in Irish education. Okay. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, You've uh, obviously looked at at this and uh, made the case to government uh, that uh, this is 
uh, outlining uh, an underinvestment uh, and undoubtedly you'll be watching uh, the response on uh, the 10th of October when next year's budget is announced. Thank you indeed though as always for joining us on the programme today. Geraldine O'Brien is uh, the President of uh, the Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland. That's the ASTI. Michael Reed on LMFM. I just want to bring you a text that came to us uh, towards uh, the end of the programme yesterday just as we were going off air because it related to a text that came to us the day previous on foot of the news or the leak or the kite flying or whatever way you want to put it about next month's budget uh, because we heard uh, from Fianna Fáil that some pensioners can expect to be taking home more than €300 Euro a week, way in excess of more than €300 Euro a week if they're on the fuel allowance and we'd a caller uh, who appears uh, to have offended some of our listeners saying why do I go to work and pay my taxes for pensioners who don't need this money, they no mortgages, uh, they don't have any travel expenses uh, do they really need that uh, and why am I funding it uh, but we got a text as I say just as we are going off air yesterday from Margaret and she said that texter asking why he's working if pensioners are, are getting uh, 300 euro a, a week let me tell you they get 265.30 a week and not all pensioners get the fuel allowance as it is means tested. Pensioners now who worked 40 or 50 years paid their tax PRS and USC when it was brought in their PRSI PRSI contributions went towards their pension so they're claiming their own contributions back uh, as uh, that person will when he retires if you don't have uh, enough contributions you don't get the contributory pension they paid their mortgages when interest rates were 12 and a half percent 17 percent even 19 percent if that man has children and gets the children's allowance then maybe the same could be said about working people who don't have children paying towards the children's allowance. The people on the pension now would have paid towards his children's allowance while they were working and never complained about it. That's the way it works. Thank you, Margaret, uh, for your text. As I say, it came in towards the end of the programme yesterday. And I want to read you another text which came to us this morning about antisocial behaviour and indeed the children's allowance. Uh, 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 Our caller says uh, the majority of this trouble that we're hearing about is being caused by children who are under the age of 18. Their parents should be either fined and imprisoned imprisoned, or their dole cut at source. I can guarantee they'd know where their lovely little brats are then. Kids having kids is the main issue here. They should take an approach like China and support one child uh, and then you're on your own instead of handing them extra money for more children, houses and the rest of the benefits that go along with it. I've worked all of my life and will never get to own my own place and can't even afford the rent these days, yet these people are handed houses, benefits, the lot. Why would they go to work? They earn more sitting on their asses at home. It's an utter disgrace. Thank you indeed uh, for your message. Our phone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Not sure what prompted that comment, but as you've been hearing on LMFM's news this morning, con- uh, investigations continue after a Garda car uh, was rammed. Indeed, a Garda was injured in Dundalk last night. This happened in Pierce Park uh, and three young 
people have been arrested as a result. Let's speak to local Sinn Féin councillor, Tomás Sharkey, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, Tomás Sharkey. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, this was a very serious incident by all accounts. It was very serious and good morning to you and to all your listeners. Uh, for some of your listeners who are just vaguely familiar with Dundalk, if you know where the train station is in Dundalk and the Harp Brewery beside it, if you go down the hill along the side of Harp Brewery, that's the area we're talking about, Pierce Park in okay. Dundalk. Yeah, and I should it's say Monday evening, uh, apologies for my mistake, but this happened uh, on Monday evening uh, and uh, apparently the Gardaí were following a stolen car. They were indeed, and this area is a—it's very close to the centre of town. It's an urban area. It's been there for a long time, and we've got a mix of elderly residents and young families in the area. So our thoughts are with the guard who's unfit for duty because of the this horrific and and uh, terrible act on Monday, where a stolen car rammed into a guard squad car. Mm. So bottom line, our thoughts are with the guardie. Um, who are involved in this. We commend them for all their efforts, but we also thank the guard who's unfit for work uh, this week as a result of the actions of these criminals. Second of all, the owner of the car that was stolen and their family, they're victims in this, and the overall community are victims. The older residents in the Pierce Park area who are looking out their living room and bedroom windows that evening, watching this act, and the families with young children who are worried about their children being out in the streets when people are carrying this out. Well, you could the kill th- somebody when you drive out a, a, another car, uh, and as you say, we wish the guard who was sitting in that car uh, a speedy recovery. Uh, but it's fortuitous uh, that this wasn't more serious because yeah, a- another car, another squad car, had to uh, avoid being banned. Yeah, so these are guards going out, doing their job, protecting the community from criminals who stole a car and they're driving recklessly around the centre of town. And while they're doing the job then, the driver of the car with the, occ- the other occupants in this stolen car make a decision to ram a squad car. Now, you know, make what you will of that, but there are young people now, because two of them have now been uh, released from detention and they're being referred to the Juvenile Diversion Project. But there's a level of bravado here, and there's a level of bravery now that disregards the rule of law, disregards the guardie, and disregards the danger that they're putting the the community in. Mm. And I think that that's the worrying thing now, that... The actions of young people—they're now ignoring the—they're the, now ignoring the consequences of what they're doing, and they're putting people that are in the community at risk. Well, what I are the consequences of what they're doing? As you say, two young people well, have been released and somebody. referred to the youth diversion program. What does that mean? Will these boys be prosecuted? Well, I, I, I really don't know, and I think that that's, that's probably a week's programming, uh, Mike, and I'd be happy to come on in the future when we start discussing what is a juvenile diversion programme. But the real consequences, the possible consequences of ramming a squad car is you could have killed somebody. Full stop. Hmm. That's the consequence. Uh, but we will discuss in the future what a youth diversion project hmm. is and oh. all the resources go in there. But if you look at the town of Dundalk and, and all of your listenerships area, there's full, there's full employment. There's a job in this area for everybody who wants one. There's apprenticeships in this area for everybody who's willing to do one. There are traineeship courses and, and uh, education courses for anybody who has an interest in it. There is no excuse for young people 
in Dundalk, Drogheda, Navan, or anywhere in the LMFM listenership area to be idle and to be getting up to this carry-on. So, and I do, and if two, if two of these people in the car were underage, I'm asking that their parents, that their families, that their overall community consider having a stern word with them about getting themselves diverted away from these actions. They could have killed because a guard. They, they could have killed it. They could have killed another guard when they went out a second car and they could have killed themselves. Uh, very, very Absolutely. serious. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but, uh, I mean, is this because of a revolving door situation for minors in this country? If you're under 18, there's no point in prosecuting and that you end up in one of these youth diversion programmes? Well, there is that discussion, but there also is the very start of this where young people decided to steal a car, to drive the car, and to ram into a squad car. And regardless of the other things about uh, diversion projects and courses, they decided. That's the thing. As human beings, we have free will. Mm. They decided to get into a stolen car, they decided to drive it recklessly, and they decided to ram into the squad and car. why would they do such a thing, do you think? Well, uh, that's the next thing. Um, Because they're brave and because they don't care about the consequences and maybe because they have seen others before them not being punished, Mm. not getting, not seeing the consequences. Maybe it's because they were allowed to uh, fall through the cracks. Maybe it's because they were expelled from school. Maybe it was because nobody cared. Maybe it was that there was nobody there to point them in the right direction. Maybe they were born to children, as our caller said earlier on. They were the children of children, uh, young uh, mothers uh, who haven't given them the guidance uh, that maybe more mature people will be. Maybe uh, there is something that should have been done at an earlier stage in their life. And I, I think of uh, the report that was made about this locality. I think Dundalk uh, comes under the Gearan report as much as Drogheda does and the Drogheda Drugs Feud and all of the things that should be done uh, in, in terms of trying to change the directions that young people take uh, and uh, the decisions that they make. Yeah, and the Gearn Report's an excellent report and the implementation of the Gearn Report has been absolutely amazing and that has made a huge impact for the for the people in the town of Drogheda. You know, there was a series of uh, an awful lot of houses were visited by the Garda Síochána where uh, young and old people were asked to account for their possessions, how they own that car, how they own these uh, fashionable clothes, expensive items, and they were made to account for that and if they couldn't account for how they came into possession while they were confiscated. But also part of the Gearn report, Drogheda now has the first dedicated electrician's apprenticeship training centre, solely for electrician apprenticeships. And that was as a direct result of, in, uh, of an intervention through the Gearn report to make sure that there's traineeships and there's pathways to education, pathways to traineeships, pathways to, to employment for young people. And I think that's what we have to do. But don't forget, there is a job in this area for everybody who wants one. Mm. There's a course, there's a traineeship, there's an apprenticeship in this area for everybody who wants one. And I think we now have to work as a society to make sure that everybody wants to work and to mm. train 
and to be educated. And if somebody steals a car and rams a guard a car and then tries to ram a, another guard a car, I'm not talking about this case specifically, but in a hypothetical situation, if you like, or in general terms, if you committed an offence uh, that is as serious as that, should there be a prosecution? Should there be a prison sentence in your mind? Of course. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank Absolutely you indeed. Absolutely, no doubt. Thank you very much, Sinn Féin councillor in Dundalk, Tomás Sharkey. Michael Reed on LMFM. We've been talking this morning about investment in education. Uh, The uh, Disability Federation of Ireland is calling on uh, the government in the upcoming budget to invest in people with disabilities. John Dolan is its CEO and a very good morning to you, John. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. You've uh, a long wish list that you'd like to see fulfilled uh, through the budget uh, that for uh, the most part uh, would help or allow people with disabilities to live independently? Yeah, well, we prefer not to be calling it a wish list in this sense. There are a number of things in it because this is absolutely 100% in line with the ambition of government that the things that they know themselves they need to do, the things they've done research on. um, And so... It's not a kid of seven coming up with a wish list for Santi. These are real things that impact on people. And in the community that you serve, um, there are people with disabilities and families. Like if, if uh, and their situation is pretty poor and and dire at this stage. There's huge concerns now about the uh, sustainability of services that people are currently getting. Uh, there's trade unions and trade union movement are, are planning industrial actions, not to get at the organisation, but to actually get at government uh, for years and years. I'm just giving that as a, mm. as a headline sure. of how unsustainable things are. Our budget package, you can put, there's a couple of things uh, in it that are what I describe as being able to get people to the front door so that they can face out with confidence into the community. And the other side of it is what has to be there to make the community accessible. Accessible uh, accessible transport, um, accessible assistive technology. The local authorities uh, do not a range of things to, to, to make life uh, easier, uh, e- easier for people. And and local transport, I've mentioned that I think already, the housing situation. Um, the, so, and then on the, on the getting to the front door, if I put it that way, um, the basic health and social services that, that, are, that are, are needed for people, the rollout of the neuro rehabilitation team, uh, the, the issue of inflation, yeah. eating in capacity to provide services, and there's a huge. The government published hmm. a plan last year, um, the capacity review, saying setting out year by year for the next ten years what needs to be done to make sure we meet the needs that are there. And at, at right now, they they a lot of organisations are not able to sustainably or with hand on heart say. And the same is true for the HSE. Um, 
that they can keep the services they have mm. going. And you talk about the trade unions and uh, the disquiet. Uh, you want uh, those uh, people working with people with disabilities uh, that their pay would be linked uh, to public sector pay increases, uh, that they would see a 15% increase in their pay. And uh, the uh, way that services are not delivering, uh, you would contend, is leading to uh, an awful lot of problems. No doubt that is the case and possibly the worst aspect of that is the amount of people who are under the age of 65 who are living in nursing homes but should not be living in nursing homes and that stands today at 1,250 people. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's shameful really, isn't it? When you say that there's 1,200 people living in nursing homes, there's 1,200 people that don't want to be there, that never asked to be there, that want to stay living in the community uh, with their families and whatever, and wanted the supports that they needed to be around in their community. And yet, they're basically shipped off to, to nursing homes, and that's been going on. They're existing in nursing homes, and I'll make this point to you. Mm. Uh, we're all reticent about our loved ones and our parents going into nursing homes because we know it's the end of the line. I could, I'll say that as softly as I can. Mm. But the average age of people outside of these disabled people in nursing homes is their mid to late 80s. And on average, they spend two years at the end of their life in that nursing home. Yeah. If you're 40 or 50 or 55 or 60 and you're a disabled person, you're going into that nursing home. You, you could be there for another 20, 30 years, and it's not designed for you. Mm. But there are, the, the, the other thing I do want to say, there are massive issues here, and I'm saying again that <clears throat> there's nothing here that we're trying to ask the government to do that they haven't actually committed to doing. We mm. could we come up with a slightly different list, of course, yeah. but these all fit in that and about two weeks ago, when we had the hoo-ha about the fiscal council and the government breaking the 5% spending rules, yeah, the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar came out and he name-checked people with disabilities and he name-checked carers. And he said, look, we need this extra money if we're to provide service for disabled people and others who need them. Mm. Now, I hope that wasn't uh, a quick flippant answer to a journalist. Well, if if it is realised, it'll certainly turn around a situation where it would seem uh, that uh, the state is failing people with uh, disabilities in so many areas. The levels of poverty are unacceptable, uh, the levels of unemployment are extreme uh, and indeed housing is a, a national crisis, but all the worse, isn't it, for people with disabilities? Oh, yeah. I mean, the number of disabled people on the housing list defined by half as much, by 5%, against those without disabilities, where it declined by 10% in recent years. Like, and, and the unemployment is more than double. You know, in round figures, they, 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 this is the gap. It's not a marginal gap. And the trend isn't that the gap is closing. It's a massive gap in a whole range of areas. And the gap, the trend is that the gap is widening and 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 uh, not narrowing. And <clears throat> the thing about the that the, the, you mentioned there about the, the 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 specifics about trying to solve with the retention and the the the, the pay issue. That's one formula for solving it. But the actual problem is this: <clears throat> that there are people who who are 
in receipt of services they are residential or, or other disability services who are being supported by uh, or, or some organisations being funded in one way called Section 39. I don't want to get technical about mm-hmm. But they're the ones that are being poorly funded compared to other people with the same conditions that are either being uh, supported directly by the HSC or by what they call Section 38. There's a massive gap. And yeah. in an economy that has unbelievably full employment, yeah, who would have believed it? Mm. Um, what's happening is that people who are working in these Section 39 organisations can get offered to do the same job with maybe less hassle in another organisation. So what are they going to do? They're going to leave. Yeah. But the Why bottom line, mm. there's thousands of people with disabilities who are now getting an unsustainable and an unacceptable service simply because of the way, simply because of the funding model the state uses uh, and other people with disabilities um, and, <clears throat> and their families are not experiencing that. So there's, there's all sorts of oddities um, in this. Okay. But I've never seen, Mike, I have never seen in all my years the unsustainability and the, 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 the flaking away the foundations of being able to provide a, a, a sustainable and decent services as I've had in the last couple of years. Well, that's and a statement in itself. You've no been at this stuff. for as long as I can remember. John, I've run out of time. Uh, thanks for your time and... No yeah. Uh, hopefully it'll be good news for you in the budget. Thanks, as I say, for joining us on the programme today. John Dolan, CEO of the Disability Federation of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, so more of uh, the comments coming to us uh, today. A WhatsApp message from somebody who says, if those yabos in Dundalk committed that crime in America... They'd be charged with attempted murder of a police officer and then they'd be locked up for 20 years. Firstly, in a youth detention centre and they'd progress onto a state prison. Our laws here are a joke. Does that Sinn Féin councillor really think that a stern talking to will stop these yobbos from causing fear and intimidation to good people in communities. We'd Mary in touch with us uh, this morning as well and she says, Michael, if we make parents responsible for their children up to the age of consent for what their children are up to, I think that would work with quite a few kids. Where do parents think their children are? Should there be consequences for kids but also for parents? Otherwise, What's the point? Thanks, uh, Mary, for that. Margaret in touch with us and she says she was listening to the comment earlier on about lone parents or children having children. I was a lone parent, she says, of six children due to being a battered wife. And let me tell you, I never had a guard to my door. Neither did my children. Uh, run the streets. Uh, Most of these crimes are from spoilt brats who got everything that they wanted and the parents, yes, two of them, didn't know how to say no. Thank you for your comment, Margaret, as well. Now, once upon a time, this was normal in Drogheda and it stopped. But where did the seagulls go? Let's speak uh, to Frank Godfrey 
Uh, Frank, good morning to you and thanks indeed for joining us. You were so concerned about this uh, that you called a public meeting. Uh, you uh, uh, gathered signatures uh, on West Street, uh, I think. Uh, you were even talking at one stage uh, about a call. But the seagulls are nowhere to be seen anymore. Do you know why? Where have all the seagulls gone. It could be a hit record for Drada, uh, Mike. Uh, yeah. Good morning to you. I was going to I say long to say, time going, but they just left all of a sudden, it seems. Well, uh, you know, uh, we did have a very active campaign and our message, uh, Mike, was clear and uh, loud at the time uh, for people uh, to don't feed the gulls. That, that was the message. And I believe that that message we got across uh, also to restaurant uh, owners and chipper shops uh, with leaflets, we actually went around to the, the, the shops and with regards to the bins, the domestic bins that were put out, that they would secure them, especially at night and after discos, because that's when a lot of food would be uh, discarded on the streets uh, by young people and all that going to from uh, mm. discos. So, uh, and for them to secure the bins, and I, I believe that they did. I've seen a lot of them around the town now in many areas, and they have secured because of uh, bins and wi- uh, plastic bags was a big issue, leaving them out. And so the the, the guns just tore into them with the crows as well. Are you so sure? We, had a mid- we, 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 we I saw it happen, and I had photographs of it. And oh no! Uh, I mean, are you sure? Are you sure that people have started to secure the bins and that that's I, I, in in many areas they have taken it very very serious. In fact, yeah. a, a few a few of the restaurant owners, uh, one there from Algeria, told me that that that's what they have done and anything they can do uh, to to resolve the matter. And they have and in housing estates as well, uh, a lot of residents have also. Uh, not feeding the gulls, and that was a that was very very important because it was open spaces yeah. and people were coming out there and they thought they were doing good by feeding the gulls. Like, right. They're majestic board. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And sure, everybody loves the gold, but the, the issue is that the place for them is at sea. Uh, but there's not, not much at sea for them, and that's unfortunate. But the, the town shopping areas, um, from a health and safety point of view, that's my, that was my concern when we set out on this campaign. And uh, we put a big effort in, and I want to thank those who, uh, the foot soldiers uh, who helped us out, and uh, those who uh, cooperated with us, and in general, the public. They've been so you're, very, very you're, you're, you're taking whether... credit for this, and uh, I don't blame you. You did have a campaign, but you say that it worked. You got the message across. But, but I, very... I, have a, I have a very specific question I have to ask you, because a number yeah. of people said to me, where have the seagulls gone? I thought, this is over the last week or two, and I really well, have noticed that you don't hear well, them, you don't see them, and it's only when you look you realise they're not here, certainly not in the numbers that they were. That, and then I was speaking to I was speaking to a friend of mine last night, and Liam asked me to ask Frank Godfrey onto the program today and ask Frank Godfrey, did he call the seagulls? I most certainly didn't, but uh, maybe someone else did, or. Uh, I hope that, that they weren't poisoned in some areas, but they did absolutely disappear over uh, the, the town of Drada, and uh, it was a relief for a lot of people. But we hope that they went somewhere like Iceland or somewhere uh, out there <laughs> and away from here. But uh, our aim was to uh, rid the town of the gulls because, uh, as I said, the gulls, the wonderful bird, but mm. not for the town. And, so, uh, so do you reckon? Because uh, oh. I miss them. I, I honestly miss them. Uh, do you reckon if well, I leave, you, if I leave some food out for them, they'll come back? Uh, well, there's no doubt that they will come back. And uh, you know, um, uh, it's a, it's a big issue, a big concern. And they will be back uh, next year because the breeding season is now over, and uh, uh, they do have two and three. And in chimbley tops and many estates, uh, people have asked me to come up. I've been around many estates. And um, so uh, we had to do something about it. And uh, I know people um, love the, the, the boards and all types of boards. But the thing about it is it was just getting out of hand. And uh, there was an invasion of them here back in June. Mm. And as I said, we had to do something about it. And people cooperated and they stopped feeding the gold. Are you surprised? And I mean, are you surprised? I, 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 I am surprised. It's because, weird. Uh, like around, around the bus station, when I often take the bus out to, I used to see quite a lot of them around there and people would be throwing food, food to them. And I, I would say to them, not to do that because they're not helping the situation here, they, you know. So uh, they would take it on board, some mm. of them. And some people uh, felt like, oh, if we want to feed the, the gulls, uh, we'll feed them, and that's it. Mm. I mean, that's democracy you can do. That, we need but, to find uh, out, though, don't we? We need we, we need to be sure. Well, I, I mean, it would it, be it, illegal. It would, yeah, because it I would be illegal people, to call the birds because they're a protected species. Yeah. Uh, and I did write to the council this morning and asked if they could shed any light on this. Mm. Would, would you Would mm. you like to know for sure what the reason for this is? Uh, because I have to say, I have to say, Mike. It, 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 it was a, a sort of a miracle across Drada 
when the, when they disappeared. Uh, for me, as somebody uh, that was taking notice and trying to do something to resolve the problem from a health and safety point of view, no other reason other than that. And I was never for a call as such, but the call did uh, offer debate in Drogheda and uh, it got people thinking, well, we have an issue here, we have a problem here, and we have to do something. So rather than do nothing and talk about uh, uh, nothing, uh, uh, we took to the streets and it, it not only got it got great coverage, um, not, it was taken on in many of the radio stations all over uh, Ireland. So it, it it was an issue and we had to deal with Indrada. Where they've gone, uh, some people may have taken action themselves, some may have called them. I don't know how they could do it without not somebody known or knowledge. But but without, um, without killing all the pigeons and the sparrows. That's and right, yeah, you're right. Well, the, 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 the gulls was killing pigeons themselves. Mm. Uh, the, there, was a lot, there was a lot of pigeons had disappeared as well. I was, I was observing that. And the remains of, of, of um, uh, pigeons, I even went up uh, to, on the tops of uh, rooftops and seen it. Uh, so they had to get food from somewhere. So it was lucky that the, 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 the pigeons wasn't wiped out altogether. But I may I say, you did mention the council there. Yeah. Uh, the council needs to get proactive here because um, they have an obligation, as I said, from uh, health and safety point of view, from shoppers and in and around the Drogheda area where there's uh, thousands of people uh, coming in on a daily basis into Drogheda. And uh, I would like to propose uh, and have uh, suggested it before that we set up, that the council would set up a seagull feeding station at the mouth of the River Boyne down towards the Balfray area. And we don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers down in Balfray, but uh, they could build their nest down there, the boards, and all waste food from restaurants and, uh, we say, um, other uh, outlets in the town that it, it could be brought out to the, 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 the mouth of the river there, and they could be fed out there in, uh, in, on a daily basis. Now, this do, do, you not find it, do you not find it horribly quiet, though? Do you not miss them? Yeah, but, uh, you, but, but, but uh, um, what I was going to say, Mike, uh, just to say to you, is a solution I'm, I'm pr- suggesting there. It is very, very quiet, and it's great that things are quiet That's in Drada. Um, well, I don't know about dreadful. <laughs> I, I think a lot of people would most certainly welcome... Uh, uh, the, the, the situation there now that yeah. there is quite unpeace. But could I say there is still a little army of them around in various areas so, on West Street, on rooftops. I've mm, been up there. You wouldn't believe, but somebody just sent me a photograph of a seagull on top of a car. <laughs> on, on top of the car, that's what I'm saying. They're not all gone. Uh, no, they're and not. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like to say that they're gone but, uh, on many times. And yeah. people are still feeding them down by the keys. Um, there was a bread man there. He disposed on a regular basis, offloads a load of uh, probably uh, waste bread, and he feeds them there. And there's other ladies there, which I got. Uh, I had a little talk with them in in a diplomatic manner and uh, asked them not to be feeding the gold. So they are down along the quay. There are in in around Westry, and the Tonsil now, which is uh, I'm delighted with, welcome the repairs there. And uh, they, were, they had nests up there um, for a long time as well. Mm. So we need to secure our buildings, so many derelict buildings in Drada, particularly Narrow Westry. This is a home for the like of the gulls, and they will keep coming back. Okay. And the people keep feeding them, they'll come back to the estate mm. and, and onto the chimneys, onto the rooftops. And they're a nightmare for people who will keep people awake all hours okay. of the night.
I so might leave the last the, comment to James uh, for the moment, at least. Uh, we'd love to hear well, from other people I, about this. Could I, Mike, just get a plug in there for our public meeting just on another issue uh, with regards to the um, the closure of the Bobbles Bridge and the suspension of tolls? We have a meeting this uh, Monday night at oh, 8 yes. p.m. in mm. the hotel, and all are welcome. So you can have your say there on the tolls. And all right. I'd just like to get that little plug in. Very Sorry, good. Mon- Mon- Monday evening in the D Hotel. Thanks, Frank. I just uh, read James's comment if I, I can. He says it's illegal to kill seagulls, they're a protected species. He says it's also illegal to feed them. Uh, and Michael, I suggest you stop making comments in relation to feeding them. And I think uh, that's fair game. Thanks, James, for that. Thank you indeed, Frank, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, uh, that's former mayor of Drogheda, Frank Godfrey. And as he said, where have all the seagulls gone? Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. This afternoon, RTE executives will be once again in front of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Media. The chair of that committee is Neve Smith of Fianna Fáil TD for Kevin Monaghan, who joins us now. And a very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. What uh, is the purpose of uh, this particular meeting today? Can you tell us? Good morning, Michael, to you and your listeners. So the purpose of today, we're, I suppose, treading new water, if you like, in the sense that we are going to meet with the board of RTE, um, and I mean the full board this morning. We haven't had this opportunity to meet <clears throat> with all of the individual members before. Uh, we have met, as you know, with Suni Rahali, who is the chair, the current chair, and, and Suni has been very forthcoming in the past too. But in, in fairness to Suni, I'd make the point that she's there for a very short time since um, the revelations have spoken, and we're talking about historical stuff with RTE, so it would be really important, and I, I would hope that someone like Ian Kyo, who's been deputy chair throughout all of this uh, period of time that we've been talking with, and a lot, along with other members of the board, will again be able to respond to the Grant Thornton report, which was published over the summer, which really pointed very clearly to lack of oversight, lack of good corporate governance, lack of transparency, all the things that you might expect from a fully functioning uh, board such as RTE. Now, if we're to listen and believe what Maya Daugherty told us prior to the summer break, she said they knew nothing. And, uh, you know, a board has a very uh, important purpose of being on any organisation, but particularly with RTE, who is our national broadcaster and has a huge budget every year to, to spend. Um, we would expect that the board we see a seismic change in how their operation and particularly how their working relationship has developed over recent weeks with the executive of RTE. Mm. Uh, and undoubtedly you'll be asking about how that money is spent uh, and you were promised a list of what the top 100 earners are being paid but that's not going to be given to you. Well, I would be telling RTE board and their new DG that that is not acceptable. Fudging matters are giving us answers like commercially sensitive. You know, terminology like that is not going to run anymore and it's not going to wash with this committee. And I doubt it would with either the Minister for Finance or the Minister with responsibility for media, Catherine Martin. We are absolutely entitled to and the public are entitled to know the pay grades at least of the very uh, top 100 earners and as I said nobody is looking to name or go after people in any sort of witch hunt way to see who's earning what but what we do want to know is 
the balance in terms of where RTE is spending its money is it spending a colossal amount of money on the top 100 earners while there's 1,800 staff and arguably those at the bottom of the scale aren't even making the, the, a living wage. 24,000 in some cases. Yeah, which equals the same amount as some uh, member 61, I think it is, who are, are getting the car allowance. I mean, the day has gone for RTE when it can give us answers like GDPR. I've already contacted the Data Protection Commissioner. I know myself it is reasonable uh, for us to expect um, the grades mm. and the, 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 the uh, salaries that people are on for the top 100 and also the bottom 100. OK, because G- GDPR is the law that RTE says prevents them from giving you this list of uh, what the top 100 earners are being paid. Uh, but you don't accept that. No, that's incorrect. My information tells me that RTE can most certainly give us a sliding scale of the salaries of the top 100 earners. As I said, we're not looking to name people, but we are looking to see the financial situation of RTE and understanding that and how it has found itself in these circumstances. Part of understanding that is to know the top 100 earners. And they said they would give it to you and they said that they'd ask the staff if they were okay with that, but they haven't done either. No, no. So right. if, mm. if they need to come before committee to be told that that's not acceptable, mm. well, that, that's what's going to happen today. As you know, we have the head of HR in this morning, and I'm sure Ms. Cusick has probably listened to many interviews that have, have been covering the story in the last 24 hours. And um, as I said, it, there's no witch hunt here. There's nobody looking to name names, but we do want to know what the top 100 earners are. We do want to know... And I think it is reasonable, and the Minister for Finance and Public Expenditure has said it is unusual to have car allowances when, you know, mm. you don't clock in the mileage, you don't know who, people have, but people have a driver's licence. Those kind of very obvious... Don't amazing. know if you have a car, or let alone a, a licence. And this came to a, a whopping total of €656,651. Uh, as you say, some people are being paid... €24,000 a year in salary uh, and other people are earning most likely much more than that and then getting a a car allowance of between €24,000 and €25,000. Yeah, and and there are basic pieces of information that I would be alarmed that RTE wouldn't expect and understand that both the committee and the ministers need all of this type of information. I think Catherine Martin has been very clear to RTE that uh, when they do come before a committee, they have to be willing to give the information. This, you know, attitude of, you know, our answers, if you like, of GDPR, as I said, we can, we can all check the facts. And the facts are that RT, GDPR is not interfered with if people are not named. If you go to your local authority, if you mm. go to the HSC, if you go to any civil service job, all you have to do is ask what grade a person is on. And you have an idea of how many staff and what grades they are, and therefore what salaries they're on. For an organisation at RTE that has uh, significant public funds, we are more than entitled to know the pay scale of the top 100 earners. We're mm. more than entitled to know about car allowances. Mm. All of that is very basic. And other uh, other allowances, I, uh, I take it, sorry for cutting across you, but uh, I mean, the car allowances amounted to 656,000 uh, mm. and a uh, few hundred and change. Uh, and there's questions uh, about why people were be giving that uh, in an allowance if uh, they didn't drive. Uh, but the total paid in allowances is over €4 million Euro for 2022. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And we haven't even touched on severance 
severances packages yet at all, Michael. So there is a lot of work to be done here and I would really hope that the board and the executive of RT come before the committee this morning with an attitude of a fulsome, wholesome uh, information that we're not dragging the information out of it, that we're not being stonewalled and given smoke screens and you know, answers like commercially sensitive or GDPR. There is always ways and means and any organisation that is sig- receiving significant public funding should understand the basics of that is being fully transparent with your information on all of your finances and RTE is no different than any other state organisation or any other agency that's state funded and they're not above all of that. Mm. What about this €150,000 that Ryan Turbody was going to pay back? Um, I don't think that was paid back, but he had agreed to pay it if they had continued with his contract, I think. That's correct. So I would be very surprised if some of my colleagues, and including myself, I intend to have that conversation with the new DG as to where that is, because as you rightly pointed out, Ryan Turbley did make a very clear statement to the committee. He was more than willing to pay that back to RTE. There was no preconditions given uh, to the committee around that 150,000. Mm. Uh, and I would be, uh, I'd be interested to hear what the DG has to say on, on that particular issue. And what about the potential cost that RTE is now facing because of the way it recruits people, the way it employs people, people who are members of staff at RTE, and both RTE and the staff are letting on that they're self-employed. Bogus self-employment, I think, is the turn of phrase. Yeah. Well, that all has to come to an end. And as you also would remember, Michael, that um, Catherine Martin, one of the reports that she commissioned was around employment, particularly external contractors, you know, and what the guidelines and governance that is around all of that. And as I said, we know there's been bogus contracts, there's been zero-hour contracts, and, you know, arguably external contracts have caused a big problem for RT in terms of living above their means, if you like, in the sense that they evidently couldn't even afford mm. really what Ryan Turberty has was demanding for his salary, or maybe to be more accurate about it, what his contractor, Noel Kelly, was demanding for his mm. salary. And that should have been the bottom line for RT. They couldn't afford him, they couldn't afford him. But they always, had the option, yeah. they always had the option of coming back with uh, the begging bowl, uh, and uh, I think they're still doing that, uh, and they will need a bailout. They'll probably be given a bailout. Uh, they uh, will be looking for at least £55 million. Apparently, they were looking for £35 million before this controversy uh, erupted. Uh, they're losing about a, a million a week in licence fee revenue. So how is all that going to pan out? Well, as I said, these are really golden opportunities, not just for the board, for the executive, to show that there is a willingness to give the information, to share that information, and stop this drift of of information. We know that that's hugely part of the hemorrhaging problem they have with the licence fee. And the sooner we, they get everything, all the facts out on the table, be really honest with the public as well as with the minister and the government as to how they've been spending their money, what they have been spending it on, and of course, proportionately, what they have been spending it on in terms of their overall finances. You know, mm. there's there's very clear formula here for, for, for salaries, for administration, all of those kind of things. Um, RTE has a really big body of work to do and these are golden opportunities when they come before the committee because the public are interested in all this yep. they, they have mm. paid, the public have been a very compliant public up to this point Michael as you know, have gone into their local post office, have paid their 160 euro because they value 
public service and public service information. It has been a trusted source uh, of information and news no more than your good selves. And the future of the Media Commission, uh, you know, recognises that. And obviously with the whatever um, mechanism the government might come up with to, you know, replace the licence fee is going to benefit, you know, regional and broadcasters like yourselves too, which is only proper and right because RT are not the only ones in the business of public service broadcasting anymore. But they are the only ones that have been in the very privileged position of receiving significant state funding, both from the taxpayer and the government. That day has come to an end. We need transparency. We need proper oversight and measures in place to make sure nothing like this ever happens again. And the thing for RT, they need to do this very quickly. They need to do it fast. There is a budget coming. And I don't think there's any minister, uh, particularly finance, public expenditure, minister for media or any government with a stomach to start handing over money without absolute transparency. Okay, well, as you say, there's an awful lot of interest in it. And I'm sure many of us uh, will be tuned into Oroctus TV when your committee starts its hearing today at half past one. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. That's Neve Smith, Fianna Fáil TD for Cavan and Monaghan, who is the chair of the Oroctus Media Committee. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Road Safety Authority of Ireland is highlighting Vision Zero. This is a worldwide commitment uh, that aims for no road deaths or serious injuries on Irish roads by 2050. The Road Safety Authority, in my opinion, is a, is a quangle um, that was a, that that was established and and has responsibility. Um, some of it marketing, some of it publicity, but some of it in practical terms, like, for example, um, and this is very relevant in terms of the the, the outcomes on our roads, um, uh, maintaining the conditions of vehicles, the NCT, that's the responsibility of the, the Road Safety uh, Authority, the, our licensing system, the NDLS, that's the responsibility of the Road Safety Authority, um, uh, our testing facilities, uh, again, the responsibility of the Road Safety Authority, for hauliers, the CPC, the the, uh, the standards, they are responsibility of the Road Safety Authority. And I would say for every one of those where the, the road safety has a competency and a responsibility, a lot of them they've, they've outsourced to uh, uh, various companies. Every one of those systems, there's a problem with. Now, that's Darren O'Rourke speaking to us on the programme yesterday. At the same time that the Road Safety Authority was launching a campaign which highlights this Vision Zero. Policy. I think it's probably reflected in the fact that the, the launch they have this morning is actually a relaunch. And I think if you if you ask many of your listeners, were they aware of the first launch, they would say no, no, they weren't. Um, Darren O'Rourke, as I say, now let's speak uh, to the Road Safety Authority. Sarah O'Connor, Director of Partnerships and External Affairs with uh, the RSA on the line. A very good morning to you, Sarah, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Do you wish to respond to that criticism? Good morning. Um, I'm I'm very happy to respond to that. I I suppose there's um, an underlying interpretation of the role of the Road Safety Authority that I probably would uh, disagree with at its core. Um, you know, what, what Darren has referred to there as being a quango is, I suppose, in more legitimate terms, described as an, an, a non-governmental organisation or a state agency. And that's certainly accurate in terms of what the Road Safety Authority does. There are a number of 
uh, powers or, or services that the RSA is mandated to provide um, by the government. Those include, for example, road safety promotion, road safety awareness, road safety education, either through our schools or through our community, um, and a number of services that, um, that Darren has referenced there, like um, licensing driver testing, the NCT, um, CPC and CDRT. Um, those are, I suppose, core transport services for the state, but each of them can also have and do have a key role in road safety. Um, you know, running services is not without its challenges, and so some of them are experiencing operational challenges, but some of them are also performing out of their skin for us in terms of road safety. And just maybe, uh, you know, to touch on, for example, Darren's point in terms of the NCT, I, I understand that people are occasionally cynical about the role of the NCT, but in reality, the NCT, 2 million NCT tests were undertaken last year um, in 2022, and of those 2 million, just over 85,000 tests were what was considered fail dangerous, which means there were 85,000 cars on the road mm. that were considered absolutely not roadworthy, not suitable from a road safety point yeah. of view and would in fact have caused a danger could have been on the road for a year, but they could have been on the road they could have been on the road for a year longer than should have been the case because of the disaster that we've all experienced so what was it something like 400,000 cars driving on the road without a valid NCT because they couldn't get a test there certainly have been delays in terms of the NCT. Certainly the have, the yeah. It's been months. crazy, hasn't it? Um, a total it embarrassment, been, I'm sure, for the Road Safety Authority. Well, it's certainly not desirable. I suppose some of it was a, a backlog as a result of COVID. And then some of it related to, I suppose, broader staffing challenges in terms of the mechanics that are available for the NCT and actually in the broader car industry in Ireland. And those aren't only in evidence, I suppose, in Ireland. They're also seen across Europe where actually mechanics are in exceptionally high demand. But what I would say to people is that the NCT service is now in a position whereby 37 of the NCT centres are offering people tests within 20 days. A further 14 of those are offering tests within 15 days. People, there's the uh, priority waiting list is down as low at the moment as 14,000. Mm. Earlier on this year, that was in excess of 67,000. So all of the tracking numbers that we work on you know, and that we hold the service provider to account on are really strongly moving in the right direction. Um, and we've seen very significant movement and improvement in that. Um, the NCT okay, but really uh, uh, it took a very concerted energy. effort uh, on the part of government and the minister and indeed a fairly hefty yes, fine on the, p- I the think, service I think provider. A whole, a whole of government mm. approach has been a concerted effort from the, go- from the minister, from the mm. department, from the road safety um, uh, authority and from the service provider here, uh, including recruiting abroad, uh, bringing in more people and making sure that actually, you know, that the levels are at the, appro- uh, at the appropriate staffing mm. required to deliver it. And, and staff, I know in terms of the NTC service, have been working overtime and have been doing their very best to help and facilitate um, uh, customers to make sure that that's the case. And okay. certainly we've seen really significant traction on that in the last six months. But to be honest, what I would prefer to go back to is to talk about the road safety campaign that was launched. A rehash. No, it was launched I, I, by the government in the, on the 14th of uh, December 2021 uh, and even at that stage they referred back to it being in the programme for government in 2020. Yeah, so just to clarify that, the strategy itself was launched at the end of 2021, but there was no public awareness campaign about what that strategy meant. We did not, for example, have an ad, have a core concept, and we have a six-month campaign that's Mm. following, which was 
kicked off yesterday. So yes, the strategy is in existence. This is not about relaunching the strategy in any way, shape or form because in many respects, a lot of the 184 actions in the strategy are moving and are progressing. This is instead about getting public buy-in and public understanding of what Vision Zero means. And Vision Zero is about achieving zero deaths and serious injuries on our roads by 2050. When was, when was the last time that there was a road safety authority campaign prior to this one? Uh, we have a number of them that are live um, over the course of the last number of months. So people, for example, will have seen uh, two significant bursts of activity around our older pedestrian campaign. Um, we have been running um, our seatbelt campaign earlier on this year and also we've been running the seatbelt campaign during some of the Rugby World Cup games. We have um, we did a significant piece around cycle safety in May. Um, we are looking at actually increasing the investment around our drink driving campaign in December. We will have an e-scooter campaign coming in November when those are made legal by government legislation which is due to follow at the end of October and beginning of November. Um, As well then as I suppose smaller, more localised, either or more targeted campaigns that run at any given point in time. Mm. Um, people will be aware of those. They are all based on the, the research in terms of you know where the problems lie, what the dangers of killer behaviours are in our roads. We run those campaigns. They normally last for about three to five years. We, we invest in a campaign. We do our best to make sure we run it a number of times so that it really registers and really lands with the public because one burst of advertising isn't appropriate. I think we'd all be uh, very much uh, aware of some of uh, the campaigns because we'd be hearing <laughs> the same message repeated and that's what works on television and uh, on radio. Uh, I, 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 I don't know, I'm maybe maybe it's just me, but I, I haven't been aware of the campaigns that you've just mentioned and it would seem to me that there's an absence of Road Safety Authority voices on airways. Well, just to speak to your point about whether or not you've been seeing it, a significant amount of our investment in the course of the last, I'd say probably three, four years, has strategically been in younger people. Um, and and you'll know from the figures that we've seen this year that they are a key cohort that we are very concerned about in terms of road safety on a behavioural level and also very sadly in terms of an impact level. And for younger people, they're not sitting down and watching the nine o'clock news and watching the ad in between. They're not even watching their favourite TV programme sitting on the couch watching it live on TV. They're watching it by video on demand, so whether that's Sky, whether that's E4, Channel 4, those particular services. They're watching stuff on YouTube. They're watching stuff on TikTok. And so for us, if we want to make sure that we're influencing that really key cohort, not only about getting their behaviour right right now, but about continuing to make those people safe drivers and road users for the rest of their lives, we have to go to where they are. And where they are not is on live TV advertising. So we're very selective. For example, we invest in live sporting events where they do go in and they do watch. We also over-index on those sporting events, for example, to make sure if somebody's doing what's called dual screening, that if they're watching it on their mobile phone while also watching TV or if they're tweeting about it on their mobile phone and text messaging friends, that what they're seeing on TikTok or any of the other channels also reflects our messaging. That's only clever. That's only smart. Because otherwise, if we were investing all of our money on RTE, on Virgin Media News, on other channels that are predominantly live, we would not be reaching those people and it would be a substantial misspend of public money. Why is that? Is that because there's been a reduction in your budget? No, uh, sorry. It's actually nothing to do with budget whatsoever. It's to do with spending the money in the right place. 
Mm. For, like the, the TV fragmentation and media consumption fragmentation among younger groups is really substantial. And like when I've named out there, for example, the way that those people digest TV or digest radio, like that will make sense to you. That will be what you'll have seen in the young people that you know in your life. And um, we do believe that there's a really significant role. And we're uh, talking to the department at the moment and to government about a really significant reinvestment in, for example, what we call point of danger advertising. And mm. over the course of the next number of months, we'd like to look at Spotify by night, youth radio stations by night, and digital, whether that's TikTok, it's Twitch, or it's YouTube music. So okay. that when people are sitting in a car, perhaps they're sharing music, and that when they're right there in that point of danger, they're driving, that they're getting that advertising straight away. That's something we're, ho- something we're hoping to push out in the next number of weeks. Okay, so, so this campaign, this campaign over the next six months, uh, there won't be yes. any television or, or, or radio ads? No, there is. There is. There's very oh, so wh- in TV and why, radio why is that then? That particular campaign is about a whole of um, society approach. So it's about every single person and it, it overweights, let's say, into younger people so there's a really significant investment in digital on it. Right. But there's also a really significant investment in TV. It's predominantly a visual-led campaign to begin with. Okay. So people will see it on TV quite a lot for the next month. The second phase of the ad then will be about digital and will be about radio. And the point about okay. that is where people say, is Vision Zero even believable? The second phase will be about really telling people okay. what's happening on a policy Level okay, so you haven't ri- you haven't written off this approach. When was the last time uh, you took this approach with one of your campaigns? Sorry, what do you mean took this approach? Now? That Sorry, you would you, you would use the internet and YouTube and all that, but also that you'd have television and radio ads. We do that on a constant basis. Um, but for example, there's there's a particular campaign that we ran last year, which we call our J1 campaign, and it's all about communicating to younger people that if they're interested in applying for a J1 and they want to go up to the mm. States for a summer, that if they if their license is disqualified, that would mean that they can't get a J1 visa. Now, there's no point in us running that particular campaign on live TV, which is very mm. expensive. I that know, but I can't... I, I, I mean, on demand I've lane. spent the last couple of days looking at, at your campaigns, and I can't see anything uh, that has run on television and radio for some time. No, we we have had significant investments. So, for right. example, the pedestrian uh, the pedestrian safety campaign, which features a lovely older lady, is a call to action both to older pedestrians and very strongly, really predominantly, to drivers, including to young drivers, to look out for our older vulnerable users or for vulnerable road users in any case and yeah. to ask them to take note and take care of that safety. That has been uh, um, out there on TV earlier um, later earlier on this this week. People will have seen our seatbelt and our drink driving ads in the course of the last number of weeks in terms of uh, the live sporting events and a whole other series of bursts. So, for example, we had a seatbelt safety piece earlier on this year as well. Okay, this Vision Zero strategy is uh, aiming to result in no deaths on roads by 2050, but you really do have your work cut out for you because we're coming to the end of 2023 uh, and by 2030, which is in seven years from now, uh, this Vision Zero campaign should result in a 50% reduction in road deaths. That's right. I mean, we were heading in the right direction until COVID hit. So we had seen road deaths in Ireland drop by two thirds over the course of from 2006 up as far as 2020. And what we have seen, I think, in the last two or three years on our research team is really digging into this to understand it is we, we saw road safety and road driving behaviours in particular really significantly deteriorate during COVID. And for the, I suppose, 18 months or two years while there was less volume of traffic on the roads, that didn't seem to show a huge bump in terms 
terms of fatalities or serious injuries, in, in part because the, the lack of traffic on the road meant that there were fewer instances, incidents. And people's driving behaviour, looking at that piece of research, has improved a little bit since 2020, but actually it has not gone back to what we would consider pre-COVID norms. And so an awful lot of the really good driver behaviour that Irish people had worked very hard to build up about speed, about minding the road conditions, about never ever drinking and driving, about never drunk driving, about wearing their seatbelts. Those particular behaviours, which are what are considered exceptionally dangerous in Ireland and abroad, those behaviours have deteriorated and they have not gone back to where they need to be. And that is the point of the campaign we were launching yesterday, is to remind the public that Vision Zero is a huge, ambitious societal goal. People have been absolutely devastated by what we've seen in the last number of weeks, and this is what they can do to help. Yes, there's a huge amount of government work, there's a huge amount of policy work. Those pieces are ongoing, they're important. And we'll be working with government to upweight or fast-track any of those we can. But the public play a part, and that's what this campaign is about. It's about capturing the attention, letting people know they're part of something big and something important asking people to have that road safety conversation with everybody in their lives as one important action and as a second important asking action asking people to identify that one behaviour that they know themselves maybe is their weak point mm. whether it's distracted driving whether it's driving too fast um, whether uh, you know it's perhaps having a drink and then they decide yep. to drive or more and it's for each one of us to say actually that's my driving New Year's resolution equivalent and by God between here and the end of the year I won't be doing that and if we all decided on that one behaviour we will actually save lives and we will turn mm. this back in the direction and repeating that message over and over, over, has, and over. has an impact and whatever about the NCT the NDLS testing in general or the CPP uh, whilst uh, you may not uh, agree with Darren O'Rourke on those issues do you reject that the Road Safety Authority has taken its foot off the pedal when it comes to road safety messaging I think I understand from the public like what we're trying to do from an advertising and media strategy. It's complicated stuff. It's very informed by experts. And for example, if somebody if somebody is not the targeted person for the older pedestrian campaign, they won't see it. Which means naturally they don't know that it's out there. But those campaigns are following the person around that we want them to see. For example, I actually had the experience personally where a, a friend called to the house and they're a little bit younger than me, or some might say a lot younger than me, and they're I think age twenty eight or thirty. And they came to the house and they said, did a brilliant job in that campaign last weekend. And I was kind of thinking, what campaign are they talking about? We didn't have a big PR push. I wonder what it is that they're looking at. And they said, oh, I saw the um, older pedestrian campaign. They said, I saw that lady eight times over the course of last weekend. I thought it was brilliant. And it really reminded me to look at more than I have been doing. And so that person, when they went on TikTok, when they went on Facebook, when they went on Instagram, that campaign found them, it tracked them around and really reminded them to say, hold on a second, I need to slow down a bit. There are a lot of pedestrians I have maybe a granny or a granddad I need to watch out for and actually I need to slow down. And I suppose that we don't expect the public to psychically know that's going on, which is why we're working on our big three to five year communication strategy at the moment. And our plan is to publish that and to tell people this is what we're doing in case people get panicky and get nervous saying, I don't know what the Road Safety Authority is at, are they doing the right stuff? So that we can explain that to people and, and guide people through that and they can understand the approaches. But I totally understand that people would be critical when they don't have that insider knowledge of, 
themselves actually this is the approach this is smart this is well informed by research this is done by tracking where we measure literally every campaign to say is it landing do people know the call to action is do they remember it a month down the line two months down the line do we need to tweak it do we need to amend it all of that thinking is built into all of our work but if people don't know that and if we're not brave enough to be out there and talking about it which is what this campaign is all about you know people need that help and support to know we're on it we always love to hear from people with their thoughts People contact us to say, I think this campaign is brilliant. And somebody else says, I think it's awful. Not every campaign is for every single one of us, for example. Um, but but that, that's the gig. You know, we have to talk to different road users in different ways. We have to bring them messages in different ways. That requires us to be brave about using humour, about using memorability. And, for example, about this particular campaign at the moment, which is all about Mary Ward, who is the first person to die in the world on the roads as a result of a car crash. It happens here in Ireland, in Burr, in County Offaly. And we want it to be our. We want to see a point by 2050 where we see our last. Mm-hmm. And the campaign is all about telling Mary's story. There's three phases of it to build people's awareness, engagement, and buy-in. And really, so that we get to a point in six months' time where people say, "I know what Vision Zero is. I've taken some changes. I've bought in. I'm going to talk to other people about it. I okay. care about it. It's my policy." Well, and that's what the campaign is all about. Well, let's hope it works uh, because we've seen a terrible spike in the number of fatalities and indeed uh, injuries. Thank you indeed, though, Sarah, for joining us on. The programme today, Sarah O'Connor, Director of Partnerships and External Affairs with the Road Safety Authority. Thanks to everybody who was in touch today. A lot of comments about seagulls that I didn't get to. John used to be a postman and he'd say that the seagulls come into towns to have their young uh, and you'd see them, uh, he'd say, when you were doing your rounds every year in certain places. It was an no-go area and then they'd go again. Thank you for that, John. Thanks to everybody, as I say, who contacted us. That's our programme for today. Maggie McGuire Research. Chris was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.